This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Hello and welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast helping you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. As you may have heard, it's not the normal introduction today. Normally, it's Bryce starting the episode off, but unfortunately, he has been called away stacking the shelves, making sure there's toilet paper available at Woolies. We are lucky enough to be joined today by another expert investor, continuing our series of interviews talking to some of the best minds and some of the best thinkers in the world of Australian finance. And today we have the chief economist at the Australia's leading ETF provider, BetaShares, uh, David Bassanese, joining us today. So David, thank you for joining us. No, great to be with you. Now, David has had a long career in finance. Before he worked at BetaShares, he was a columnist at the Australian Financial Review. He spent several years in financial markets as a senior economist and interest rate strategist at Bankers Trust and Macquarie Bank. He started his career as a Commonwealth Treasury officer and also spent three years as a research economist at the OECD. So a long and storied career in finance, and we're looking forward to tapping into some of those insights to get your thoughts on what's happening in markets and in the broader economy today, David. So once again, thanks for joining us. No worries. Before we get stuck into it, we always like to start off these interviews with a bit of a game, just to get a sense of who you are as an investor and what you're thinking about some of the key topics or themes that are going around the investing community today. The game is called Overrated or Underrated, where I'll throw a topic out or an idea out and I'll ask you to share your thoughts on whether it's overrated or underrated. So are you up for playing? Sure, let's do it. So to kick it off, we'll start local, overrated or underrated, the ASX 200 index. Probably at the moment, I would. I think there's a little bit more downside to come in the markets in the, in the very short term. So 
I probably think it's a little bit overvalued still. We're facing, you know, as I'm sure we may get into a bit more downside in terms of the economy. So I think the market's got a little bit further to probably decline in the short run. So in that sense, I would say it's overvalued. But, um, yeah, just in in anticipation of weakness of, of, of earnings to come. And then if we look overseas, overvalued or undervalued, the S&P 500 index in America? Yeah, look, by similar similar situation, I think it's... But in the short run, I think it's probably going to remain under pressure, may well decline somewhat more, so a little bit overvalued, even at current valuations. Now, moving on to a key investing strategy, I guess you would call it, that's very popular in our equity mates community... Overrated or underrated, the strategy of dollar cost averaging? Oh, that's an easier one. Uh, that's uh, very much, uh, I think, underrated. I mean, it's a very good strategy to, 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 to have. Certainly, uh, you've got a long investment career ahead of you as well. So, and in the current environment, for example, it makes a lot of sense. Now, uh, this next one might be a little bit of a softball given <laughs> where you work now at BetaShares, but overrated or underrated index investing? Uh, yeah, another, well, probably I would ha- you would have to say it is underrated. I mean, people see it as a bit of a cop-out to go index investing, but the reality is it really takes the emotion out of a lot of investing and, and people's emotions often get in the way of good decisions. So on that basis, I think uh, index investing does make a lot of sense. Now, the next one is always a controversial topic when you're talking to Australians, especially young Australians, which is the majority of our equity mates audience. So overrated or underrated, the Australian residential property market? Look, it's it's very expensive by global standards, but I think it's expensive for a reason. It's expensive because of the way in which we choose to live. We're a very urbanised society. We like low-rise housing rather than high-rise apartments. And so as a result, land premiums are very expensive. So it's, uh, I'd actually say, would you believe, fairly valued. It's, uh, I don't think it's certainly overrated. I wouldn't say it's underrated, but it, it is what it is, basically. It, it would be the way I would approach it. It's expensive by global standards, but it, yeah, just the way in which we choose to live and, and the, way, the sort of developments we allow and don't allow. It'll be an interesting one to watch as our current economic crisis unfolds to mm-hmm. see the effect on uh, yep. Australian residential property. Now, another one that is a hot topic in our equity mates community and very interesting to watch at the moment, given the broader economic turmoil, mm. overrated or underrated Bitcoin? Look, again, I'm, I would say overrated. I've never really been a big believer in the whole Bitcoin thing, but so I would say overrated. I can't really see it ever placing uh, traditional currencies. There are a lot of reasons for that, but let me just yeah, answer the question and say I think it is overrated. A few people we're following on Twitter at the moment think that the US dollar is going to go to zero and Bitcoin is going to go to, you know, 100 million. So <laughs> that's probably the other extreme end of the spectrum. Yeah, and um, sure. <laughs> watch and wait and see. Now, the last one, and this really uh, sets up the main topic on everyone's mind and the, uh, the conversation that we'll really get stuck into today. So the last one is overrated or underrated, uh, the coronavirus's impact on Australia's economy. Look, sadly, I think it is underrated. And I think we're going to see, you know, we're, you know, just as I speak to you today, I mean, we are starting to see evidence of the, the impact of the shutdowns that we're going through on the economy. I think people are going to be a little bit shocked at, at basically, you know, how bad it can be. So I think underrated. I think we, we've gone into 
saying let's lock down the economy because we're worried about coronavirus, but don't think we fully appreciate the cost of, of just going down that path. So underrated, unfortunately. Yeah, now, so we can put this conversation in context. We're recording on the yeah. afternoon of the 24th of March. So we've seen some really tough weeks, both from an economic point of view and from a, you know, just broader societal and health point of view. Let's start broadly. And for people who, you know, have been living under a rock for the last few weeks, how would you summarise what we've seen in the past month or month and a bit to someone who is, you know, not really across what's happening economically? To start with, how would you summarise it? Look, it's probably been the... Well, I've been around the markets and looking at economies for years. This is probably the, the biggest shock. And this is potentially bigger than the GFC, but bigger than, you know, I'm not that old, but I've been, you know, I haven't had a recession in Australia for 20 years, but we're definitely going to go have one now. So it's the first recession in 20 years. I mean, basically what's happened is obviously the coronavirus that started in China the hope was that many countries would be able to contain it. We'd identify people who have it. We'd be able to quarantine them. We'd be able to trace it back and then quarantine others that might get infected. And as a result, not let it spill out to the brain. Ultimately, the big problem with the coronavirus is that it's not so much people getting sick. Many people that get sick will be able to, you know, deal with it. It's like, you know, it's like a bad flu for many, particularly younger, healthier people. But for some older, many older people, if they do get it, they will need to go to hospital. They may need intensive care, and that's the problem. And that's that if everybody gets it at the same time, we could overrun our hospitals. So, unfortunately, given we haven't been able to contain it, we're now going down the path of lockdown. Basically, you know, gradually we've closed various businesses, and this is not just in Australia, but uh, you know, around the world, closing cafes and whatnot. And full lockdown basically means you know you've got to stay in your home unless you need to, you know, leave to get food or medical attention. So that we're seeing, this is obviously going to have a devastating impact on economic growth and, and lockdowns, you know, uh, people say, let's do a lockdown. I'm worried about the virus. Well, you know what, there's a cost to doing that and this is the cost that we're going to be going through at the moment. So the share market is off, you know, something like 30 odd percent from its highs and it's really, and why is that? It's just because of the reality of we haven't been able to contain the virus and the only solution we kind of feel we're left with is is locking down the economy, which is dev- going to devastate corporate earnings in the short run, uh, and the share market is reacting to that. Yeah, now, as you said, global markets are down. The ASX 200 has lost about a third of its value, and the S&P 500 in a similar situation down over 30%. And I guess for a lot of people, even for people that have been in markets for a long time, it was the speed of the drop that that really surprised people. So how do you think about just how quickly it all happened? Yeah, like just to put it in context, this is the, when when we have a a so-called bear market, bear market is defined as when the market has fallen by 20% from its previous high. So yeah, as you noted, we're down 30% now. So we are in a bear market in that sense, and it's been the fastest decline really in history. So this is the fastest than even during the Great Depression, and things haven't fallen that far that fast. And the reason is because it's not an economic shock. It's not when you get an economic shock and the economy slows, it usually happens somewhat gradually and people are unsure as how deep the downturn will be, what the impact of corporate earnings. So the market does decline, but it doesn't it declines gradually and there's 
movements up and back. Whereas this time, because it's been hit by this virus and, with, and governments, you know, when, when a government announces all oh, cafes and restaurants need to shut, people need to stay indoors, you know the economic impact of that. You know it's going to be huge. And so the market has been able to respond a lot more quickly because it anticipates... This is all happening before we even see the unemployment rate go up, before we see businesses fail. It's in anticipation of that. So that's why the market reaction this time has been so fast. Now, we we mentioned at the top that you're an economist by trade and you're the chief economist at BetaShares. Just to, to put what's happened since the coronavirus has hit in context, how was Australia's economy and I, and I guess the global economy mm. looking before, I guess, mid-February? Yeah. Look, it wasn't looking that bad. I mean, our economy, just to start with us, I mean, our wasn't looking that great. I mean, we've had uh, essentially pretty sluggish growth for a couple of years now. And I guess the main driver of that has been that income growth in Australia, certainly among households, has been pretty sluggish for a long, for a long time. Consumer spending has been pretty sluggish as a result as well. And we've had a housing downturn. We've had a decline in commodity prices and mining investments. So we've had a, enjoyed a mining boom for a while, but that, that's unwound. So the economy actually came into this fairly sluggish. The RBA had already cut interest rates to quite low levels. It was at, actually at 0.75% before the coronavirus hit. Globally, things, look, weren't fantastic. Uh, They were not bad, but sluggish. The US economy, which is the most important economy in the world, was actually still growing at a reasonable pace at uh, something like 2% or so a year annualised, which is actually not that bad. It's enough to keep unemployment low. And the unemployment rate in the United States was at 50-year lows, so it's like at 3.5%. So that economy was doing pretty well. China was doing okay as well. It was chugging along at a, at a pretty good pace. So, yeah, so now we've been obviously hit by the coronavirus and China's had a big downturn. The US is now having a downturn. And so our economy, which was already pretty weak, not recessionary, but sluggish, has been hit. But we were getting along. Again, it was, growth was meandering along at a reasonable pace, but uh, certainly not, you know, I would, wouldn't characterise it as super, super strong. But just chugging along at a reasonable pace would be one way to describe it, perhaps. Yeah, it really just came out of the blue. I mean, people were aware that the coronavirus was in China and it was spreading, but the scale of the economic impact seems to have really hit us out of left field. I guess as an economist watching this and watching how the broader Australian economy responds, what are some of the key indicators that you're going to be watching to really take the temperature, I guess, of Australia's economy? Yeah, well, again, like the, the, the traditional things we look at are things like the unemployment rate, home building approvals, uh, retail spending. So there are a number of like traditional economic indicators that people like myself look at. But funnily enough, in this situation, given it's been driven by the, the coronavirus and the, the policy reactions to the coronavirus, it's actually I'd be I'm now looking more so at things like the rate of you know new coronavirus infections, you know how many people are getting it, and because until we get on top of that, the restrictions that we're seeing in the economy now won't be lifted. So, in a way, the economic data is actually going to come last. It's like it's a lagging indicator, as we say. So to get a read of the economy will be, you know, where is there light at the end of the tunnel in terms of the economy? It's going to depend on will these, the, the, the restrictions we're seeing 
dampened down the rate of new cases of coronavirus and as a result allow governments to slowly sort of unwind these restrictions. So that, that's going to be critical. As an example, China basically went through a lockdown a month ago, did get on top, so they had, a, a, I guess, a spiralling rate of infection in their country with those lockdowns. They got on top of it, the, the rate of infection in China has come down, at least based on their statistics. The next one to look at it would be a country like Italy, where they went into lockdown again ahead of anyone else outside of China because they got the, the virus worse than many other countries. So again, we'll be looking to see can they get on top of the rate of infections in Italy. And again, there's some tentative signs that maybe they are starting to see a slowdown, which is hopeful. Now, the only thing is, again, like... Being an economist, you've got to focus on things that affect the economy. So in the space of a couple of months, I'd like suddenly know a lot more about infectious viruses than I than I did beforehand. And so, and one of the things we do know about the shutdowns that we seem to be going through, the problem with a shutdown, just locking everybody down, is that when you then lift the restrictions, you know, you may get the res- the number of infections down, but then if you lift the restrictions, the problem is you haven't built any immunity within the community. Like everyone's still as susceptible to it as they were before, and then if it's still around in some capacity, it can come back. And so, if you go all the way back to the Spanish flu of 1918, was probably the last greatest pandemic that we had that had this sort of impact on the economy. They got, you know, second waves, second, even third waves of the virus. And so, unfortunately, the ultimate solution here is going to be a vaccine and how long that takes, because a lockdown per se, the risk is, you know, we could get repeated lockdowns if the virus re-emerges in the absence of a vaccine. So all eyes, in terms of economics at the moment, are really focused on that battle of containing the virus. When the restrictions are lifted, will the virus come back again or not? And the actual economic data, funnily enough, will take a backseat to that. Yeah, that's an interesting way, but it makes a lot of sense in terms of how you look at it. It's a health crisis first and an economic crisis second. And it's a scary thought just thinking about multiple resurgences and multiple shutdowns and what that will mean yeah. for, for Australia. So obviously governments around the world have come out very strongly in response to it and also central banks have come out and taken quite strong steps to really confront the virus. So if we start broad again, for people who aren't too close to what the response has been, can you tell us what governments and what central banks have done and then we'll, we might yeah. get into chatting about some of the specific things and your thoughts on them? Yeah, so, I mean, I guess on the one hand, government's obviously been restricting the economy to deal with the virus. So, we, you know, again, we've, we've cut back on certain activities, encouraged social distancing, those sort of things. On the other hand, like sort of a Jekyll and Hyde situation at the moment because, you know, on the one hand, governments are actually deliberately slowing economic growth to contain the virus. So if you keep people at home, if you shut businesses, that's going to damage economic growth. On the other hand, they've tried to support growth by giving, uh, in the case of the uh, Reserve Bank, for example, and the central banks around the world, cutting interest rates. So the RBA, I mentioned, before the virus hit, rates were pretty low, they were at 0.75%. They've now cut them to 0.25%. And the central bank is, is providing a lot of funding for banks so they, in turn, can provide funding to, to businesses that need to draw down on their, their credit lines and borrow money to get them through these tough times. So the Reserve Bank is making sure that the banks can tap their credit lines and in turn provide credit lines to companies because, again, if companies have lost revenue, they've got overheads to deal with, they're going to have to borrow to get through these uh, difficult times, some of them. Um, 
on that, and so that's monetary policy. It's a, it's cutting interest rates to very low levels, and also ensuring that uh, banks have enough ability to lend credit to to companies that you know within reason. I mean, banks are still going to have to do their their credit checks and whatnot. I mean, they can't you know run a charity, of course, unfortunately. So they're going to have to decide whether. Which is all very hard, of course, at the same time, right? Because we're unsure how long this slowdown will last. So it's not going to be an easy situation for banks in terms of um, providing those loans. But the government has also tried hard to support growth. They're giving, for example, that anyone on welfare are getting a a cash handout over the next couple of months. Again, the only problem in this environment, people may well try to save that money rather than spend the money. So it's one thing to give people money. It's another thing to get them to encourage them to spend that money. And again, if we if we shut if we're shutting down shops in any case, what's the point? You know, this is the, the Jekyll and Hyde situation. We're saying, you know, shops have got to shut, but here's some money because we don't want to have a weakness in retail spending. So it's sort of a little bit at the moment, sort of confused as to, you know, what we really should be doing. But so government again, governments are doing what they can in terms of fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus. But at the end of the day. What really matters is the fact that we're shutting things down to deal with the virus, and as a result, any a lot of the stimulus we're seeing, I think, um, helps at the margin, but it doesn't really change the uh, the otherwise um, pretty you know downbeat outlook in, in the immediate future. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Yeah. Now, if we start with the central bank response, because that that really fascinates us here at Equity, Equity Mates, because sure. you, to your point, interest rates were already extremely low. Um, central banks around the world aggressively cut rates to zero in some countries or very close to zero in others. Um, mm. And I guess the, the first question we have is, how much impact do you think making borrowing money even cheaper than it already was. How much impact do you think that actually does have at a time like this? Look, on a scale of zero to 10, probably a two or a three, but not much. I mean, as you mentioned, interest rates are already very, very low. I mean, look, in one sense, look, if you have a a mortgage, you're paying off a mortgage, mortgage rate comes down, it means you've got a little bit more cash in your pocket or if you still end up... But again, in Australia, what tends to happen is people pay off the same amount of money every month and so when the RBA cuts interest rates, effectively means more of your your loan repayment goes into paying off your principal rather than paying off the interest component, if that makes sense. If you're paying off a certain nominal amount of money every month, the rates are lower, more of that will go to, to reducing your capital that you owe the banks. Some people can elect to take that interest rate cut through lower repayments. And again, I think in this situation, you may well find people cutting their, their mortgage repayments to some extent to you know use that money elsewhere. Particularly, you know, unfortunately, if you I mean if you, if you have if you've lost your job, as many will, you may find that banks not only cut your interest rate, they'll probably give you a bit of a mortgage repayment holiday or you know pause it for a while. I mean, unfortunately, the interest may start to accumulate, but 
at least the rate at which it will accumulate would be less because they've already cut rates. But bottom line, I mean, again, unfortunately, in the case of the Reserve Bank, rates are already low. And this is the other problem. You know, in the GFC, when we had the global financial crisis a decade ago, interest rates were able to be cut a lot further from a higher level, whereas now they can't really be cut that much at all. So they can't really provide that much stimulus. Yeah, now that leads on to the second thing that the central banks did, which was quantitative easing. So for people who are unfamiliar with the term and what that sort of means for the economy, can you explain it? Then then we might yeah. get into how quantitative easing is actually meant to change, you know, the circumstances in the broader economy. Yeah, so quantitative easing effectively, I mean, again, some people liken this to the central banks are printing money, like, you know, getting up the printing press and printing money and then, you know, dropping it out of a helicopter. There's an analogy in economics of, you know, dropping money out of a helicopter because, you know, that's one way to stimulate spending and, and it can also be quite inflationary. So, again, going back to the GFC when the reserve, the global financial crisis 10 years ago, the United States central bank did quantitative easing and people thought it was printing money. But it, in fact, wasn't printing money. What it effectively is is they go into the market and they buy up typically government bonds. Banks go out, central banks go out and buy that debt because what it does, by buying all those bonds, it actually lowers the interest rate on those bonds in the market. So they're prepared to buy those bonds and lower the effective interest rate that you get on those bonds. And what that does is then that filters through to interest rates around the economy, so longer-term interest rates. Again, going back to the first principles, when the RBA cuts interest rates, what it's doing is cutting the very short-term day-to-day interest rate that banks, very short-term interest rate funding in the economy. What it can't affect is longer-term interest rates. So like you know, when companies borrow for three years or five years, that longer-term rate is largely dictated by bond yields on government bonds, for example, in the market. The central bank going out and buying up bonds, like bidding up the price of bonds and lowering the, the yields that are prepared to accept on those bonds, it actually can help lower longer-term interest rates for corporations. So that's essentially what quantitative easing is. It's buying up bonds to lower longer-term interest rates to complement their, their actions to lower short-term interest rates. It's not dropping money out of helicopters. It's not um, printing cash, uh, so to speak. Although uh, dropping money out of helicopters may be the uh, the visual that we need <laughs> to uh, to get through this. We may get to that. <laughs> So I guess quantitative easing is relatively new in Australia, but it is not new around the world. When you look at quantitative easing as a policy choice in this situation, how do you think about it and how do you think about that? the decision the Reserve Bank has taken to engage in it? Yes, RBA has been quite innovative here because Japan did something similar, but quantitative easing, when it was initially done, was basically what central banks would do, they would announce a monetary amount from which they would buy up bonds. So they would say, we're going to go out and buy, you know, $200 billion worth of government bonds in the market. We think that's going to bid down the the yield on those bonds and and make the interest rates of everybody else lower. What the RBA's gone and done is actually said, they haven't specified a monetary amount. They've actually gone out and said, we're going to target, for example, three-year government, so bonds that are issued for a three-year term by governments that you can they're out there in the, in the marketplace the RBA said we are targeting the yield on those bonds to be no more than 0.25 percent so if we need to we'll go out and buy bonds to make sure that the yield is no more than 0.25 percent so it's a price target effectively now what can happen is that 
simply announcing that target may mean they don't need to buy that much because the market will basically re- reprice them at that level anyway, which is effectively what's happened. So that's really what the RBA's done with their quantitative easing program. And they have, you know, since that announcement, they have been in the market buying up securities and keeping that, that price down. As I said, and the reason for that is to, to lower the lending rates that corporations face when they go out and borrow. So companies now can go out and borrow for three years from a bank, and that rate will be lower than it was before because the, the yields on the government bonds have come down. Now, I guess the, the question that obviously flows from both of these central bank actions, the cutting of interest rates and the quantitative easing program, is it's, um, it's designed to make borrowing cheaper but when a lot of companies are sending workers home and shuttering their doors, is making borrowing cheaper going to have an economic effect? You know, are companies going to take advantage of this cheaper money, I guess, is, is really the question. Look, again, at the moment, probably not by a lot. So, again, on the scale, it's not zero. But, again, if, you, if uh, just maybe a way to simplify it is to say on a scale of 1 to 10, you know, very, very effective and zero, you know, not very effective at all. It's probably like a 2 or a 3 because you're in a very weak economic environment. Interest rates are already very low, so I don't think companies are going to you know, suddenly decide to borrow a lot more and invest in, in new you know, plant and equipment or a new factory or whatever just because the interest rate has come down by half a percent because it's already very, very low. So that's the, uh, that's the, you know, the challenge with the situation. But again, at the end of the day, the RBA has one instrument. It's in, Well, it has now it's a couple of instruments, but its main instrument has been to change short-term interest rates through the, the official cash rate. And so uh, facing the sort of economic weakness that we're now facing because of the virus, it's used that instrument and it's cut rates. So again, you can argue it's not going to have much effect, but you know, they've done what they can do, even though they can't do that much uh, at this point. Yeah, and that, that really leads us on to the second part of the government response, which has been the response from the states and from the federal government. Mm-hmm. So how do you think about what they've done in terms of their economic response? I think the federal government's package is up to $190 billion or close to that at this yeah, point. Enormous, yeah. W- what do you think the sort of key mm-hmm. things that we should be paying attention to in that package and, and how do you think about how they've responded? Well, again, like the, the difficulty they face is that the economic weakness that we're facing is actually deliberately engineered by government. So on the one hand, they're providing stimulus, and on the other hand, they're actually closing down businesses, telling people not to leave their homes, this sort of stuff. So stimulus, in a sense, is almost, you know, what is, it, why you, what is the point of stimulus when actually deliberately telling people to stay indoors and, 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 you know, not do anything. What the stimulus really ultimately now is about is just so, trying to support people through this difficult period. So it's income support. You know, again, a lot of the money directed towards small businesses. Small businesses can apply for, I hope, the, by the way, the application process isn't too onerous, but sometimes people complain that governments offer things, but, you know, they've got to way through a mound of bureaucracy before they can get the money, unfortunately. So that's the fine print that I'm not across. I'm not sure how detailed that will be. But the, the, the stimulus at the moment now is really not about causing the economy to not weaken, not to rebound and to sort of rebound very, very quickly. It's more just to provide income so that, to the extent possible, businesses don't have to lay off a lot of workers. And to the extent people do lose their jobs, there's income support through, you know, higher new start allowance, for example. I mean, one, you know, small upside out of all this is that the government has increased the new start allowance, which uh, many economists and myself included thought had been too low for too long. 
So that has now uh, been increased, and it probably will stay up. I think now now you've increased it, you're probably not going to decrease it uh, very very quickly, but we'll have to see. So the stimulus really, just to summarise again, is not so much about avoiding economic weakness in the short run. It's basically making sure people can get through it and still you know put food on the table essentially. Yeah, which is exactly what you know you would expect governments to do in this situation. Anything less than a full-blooded response from them would have had people yes. questioning what they're doing. Yeah, I mean it's hard to believe a couple of months ago they were you know worrying about the budget surplus. I mean we're going to have an enormous budget deficit now for years to come. So any hope of a surplus, you know, within the next five, possibly even ten years, is going to be tough. And you know this is exactly what fiscal policy is designed to do. It's designed to well. There's a few things it's designed to do, but in terms of the budget position, situations like this is when the government needs to spend a lot more money and and have a bigger deficit. It's a it's sort of counter it's a sort of counter cyclical policy as it's called, and it's another reason why when things are when we have good economic times, they're, they're trying to rein in that deficit so that they can have some money to spend in, in times of need and, and not be weighed down by too much debt in the process. Yeah, now. I guess the the big question, well, it, it may not even be that big a question anymore. It may be a foregone conclusion. So I guess I'll just ask it to you outright. Yeah. Are we going to have a recession in Australia in 2020? I was debating that even just a couple of weeks ago, but I think now, unfortunately, there's absolutely no question. Again, there's different ways. People define it differently, but a technical, so-called technical recession is the term economists use, is when you get two quarters of negative economic growth as measured by the National Count's GDP measure. It seems very likely that the March quarter, so the three months to March, will be negative. And now it's looking like, you know, the three months to June will be negative as well. So on that definition, you, we, yeah, we are probably going to get a technical recession. Another definition is when the unemployment rate goes up by, you know, let's say 5%. And unfortunately, the way things are looking, that's going to happen as well. So the unemployment rate may well go from around about, you know, current rate of around about 51 uh, up to around possibly 10% over the next three, uh, even six months, depending on how long this this goes. So I was 50-50 on this as recently as, as even probably two or three weeks ago, but now I think it's an absolute foregone conclusion that we're going to get that. And it's all part of the lockdown. Again, if you lock down the economy to deal with the virus, consequences is very weak economic growth and, uh, and a recession. Yeah. Now, I think one of the scariest things, at least financially, that I've read in a long time was Goldman Sachs came out with a prediction that the US economy was headed for a stunning 24% drop in 2020 because of the coronavirus. I guess the first question is, do you think it's in the realm of possibility that a quarter of a country's GDP is wiped out because of this? And how do you put a number like that in perspective, I guess? Just to, so what, can you just say what the 25% drop in one quarter, is that right? Did no, say, in, uh, 24% drop in GDP for the year. Yeah, well, that's a pretty enormous number. I'd be shocked if it's that weak. Yeah, but I mean, let's, let's think about it. Again, there's four quarters in a year. If you get zero, I mean, this is a pretty extreme. If you have zero growth in one quarter, so if for one quarter of your year it's zero, then you know you can actually get 25% decline in that sense. So that's sort of you know how that number could come around. I haven't seen the exact number that you're quoting, so I'd just be cautious on that one. I mean, the thing about the US also, I just should point out with that 
hopefully getting too technical, is that sometimes numbers are quoted. The US have a tendency to annualise their numbers. So say we get a GDP number that's minus 2% in a quarter. The US tend to annualise that. So they'll like, you know, times it by four, and so it's like an 8% decline in GDP in a quarter. But it's actually 8% annualised, if if you know what I mean. So the only reason it gives me caution is I'm not sure what what time period or or whether it's annualised or not. But if you get zero GDP in one quarter, like a hundred percent decline in GDP, it's, it's technically possible. But uh, look, I don't think it'll get that bad. But I mean, you're probably looking at in a year something like five, you know, possibly even minus five percent uh, growth uh, over a whole calendar year. And that's maybe looking at, you know, maybe economic growth declines by like two, three, five percent in one quarter. But it could be a lot more than that. But uh, it just depends on the nature of the lockdown that we're going through. I think it's a good call out around the annualised growth rate. That's not something we were aware of. And now if you thought about it, it, minus 6% and then you times it by 4, that that probably seems more in the realm of possibility. So we'll uh, we'll take that number with a grain of salt and we'll check our facts on that one. Sorry, just to interrupt, I mean, one maybe way in which people can... I mean, GDP growth is, is sort of... It's hard for people to get their heads heads around that sometimes. So, I mean, one measure people do, I think, understand is the unemployment rate. So, for example, if you take the US, during the GFC 10 years ago, the unemployment rate went up to 10%. Some people are saying it could go as high as 20%. In the Great Depression, the 1930s has got as high as, I think, something like 30% at one point. So, again... The Great Depression in the 1930s went on for a number of years, and that was because governments didn't do any fisc- any macro stimulus. So I don't definitely Great Depression is unlikely, but something like Great Depressionary type conditions may well be around at least for a few months. So it could be a very short, sharp decline in growth and, and a very big spike in the unemployment rate as a result. And in Australia, you know, we have a five percent unemployment rate. It's not inconceivable if this drags on for a while that it hits 10%, which is sort of what we hit during recessions of, of past. So that might help people think about sort of the orders of magnitude in terms of economic weakness that we may face. I think whenever we start hearing historical comparisons to the Great Depression, it indicates just how scary the times that we're in. Yeah, again, I, and I don't want to scare people in that sense because people are talking about depressionary conditions. And I think Again, the Great Depression was very weak for a very long time. And, and the main reason was because governments at those times didn't believe in macro stimulus. They actually thought the way to cure an economy when it was down was to actually inflict more pain on it by restricting money, by actually tightening up monetary conditions. These days, they uh, offer a lot of stimulus. And again, we think the, the in the, even in the worst case scenario, this drags on, we will eventually come up with a vaccine with this virus. And so we'll get out of this cycle because we'll all be able to get vaccinated and not face this problem. So there is light at the end of the tunnel with regard to the virus and we have macro stimulus. So definitely Great Depression is not... But at least for a month or two months, it could feel like that. Yeah. Now, I want to turn to people who have started investing. We're obviously an investing podcast with a community of people who are interested in markets, a lot of them very early in their journey. We actually released a second podcast, uh, Get Started Investing with Equity Mates, that finished up in January. So there were people that listened to that 12-part series, started investing, and then a month later, this hit. So they probably have stopped listening and are cursing our names at the moment. But, (laughs) But I guess for people out there who are 
looking at their brokerage account or maybe too worried to look, how do you think people should think about investing in a time like this? If you're early in your career, like if you're relatively young and you're sort of dribbling, investing gradually over time into the share market, the good news is that this is probably one of the best times in your life to buy the equity markets. If you're just starting out now, it really doesn't matter. The point at which you start investing doesn't matter because you're talking about a 20-, 30-year journey of regular investments in the share market. So whether you started two months ago or today, you know what? In the greater scheme of things, over 20, 30 years, it doesn't really matter. So that's point one. Point two is if you've got a money that you haven't invested, say like a pool of money, like a big stock of money, let's say, that you want to invest in the market, well, today is actually, you know, one of the best times you'll you get few opportunities like this. So the market uh, is down. It could go down a little bit more in the short run. But over the next few years, you're probably going to enjoy a pretty good recovery putting your money in now or, you know, at some point over the next couple of months. So that's the way to think about it uh, in terms of... And then I guess the other question then is, what is if you've already put all your money in the market and you've watched it go down in the short run, you know, do you, you know, take your money out? I mean, this is the problem and it's really probably a bad idea to take your money out in times of panic like this because, A, look, you may save some more downside if you took your money out today, let's say you saved 10%, but the chances are by the time you feel ready to get back into the market, the market may have recovered 20 30% from a low. So it's one thing to get the money out and save some of the downside, but what you save, you may end up lose by not being back in the market when it recovers. So market timing like that is very, very difficult. 2020 hindsight, we're all geniuses, and we knew that the coronavirus back in January was going to lead to a lockdown uh, around the world, I would have said, you know, take your money out. <laughs> but the thing is, it's already down. It's it happened. There's probably a bit more downside to come, but it's probably too late to really try to avoid that big decline. And to the extent you did, you probably missed the rebound anyway. So that that's probably, you know, it really depends on one situation. Assuming you're all, you know, relatively young and you've got a long investing time frame, the good news is that the sort of what's happening these days doesn't matter that much from, from what you will have at the end of the end of your investing journey. Beta shares have a range of inverse ETFs and there will have been a number of people that have done quite well to kick this year off by holding them through this period. For people that haven't bought them and are looking at them and are looking at their returns in the last month and going green with envy. How should people think about these inverse ETFs when we're already 30% down, but there's so much uncertainty around what's going to happen next? Well, there's two reasons people would buy the inverse ETF. Well, firstly, again, we see this a lot. If you've, uh, especially for, say, some, some older investors, for example, that may have been in the market a long time, have accumulated large share portfolios, Stocks they've held for a long time, they have a lot of embedded capital gains, like they've made capital gains sitting on these stocks. They are worried about a share market decline, but they don't want to necessarily have to sell their shares. And so what you can do by using the bear fund is uh, basically take a, a short position in the market. So if you are right, if your fears are realised and the market declines, then yes, the paper value of your shares goes down, but it's offset by the gains you make on the bear fund. So effectively, by buying the bear fund that you know, broadly say matches what your equity portfolio is, you're effectively going to cash in a way because your wealth position isn't dependent on what happens to the share market. The downside of that approach, of course, is that if the market, if you get it wrong and you do that at the bottom of the market, the market rebounds, you're going to lose money on bear fund. 
but of course you're making some money on the on the shares because they've rebounded, and then you'll need to presumably sell a part to at least cover the the, the net loss you've made on 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 the on the bear fund as a result. But net net. You're still square because you're square because you basically said you've hedged your position, you've gone to cash. Now the other way to do it is more short-term spec, you know, or short-term investors, speculators, whatever the word you want to use, is if you do anticipate the market declining somewhat more. And again, I think in the short run the market will decline somewhat more, maybe even 10, possibly even 15 percent. You know, we could go all the way down 50 percent. Don't hold me to that, but I mean there is a chance the market goes down somewhat more before it rebounds. And so if you believe that, you can buy bear and, and benefit from that. But, you know, you've got to obviously be aware that, you know, the risk is that it could go the other way. So it's like any investment, you know, you make a you make a call. I would also say, you know, obviously to the extent you do that, be very wary of the risks you're taking, like have a sense of where's my stop loss. You know, if I'm wrong and the market goes the way I didn't anticipate, at what point do I decide to get out of that position and make sure that the what you invest, the loss you would make when you at that stop loss point is something you're prepared to wear. So you've got to be, you know, the way in which people do this is they say, okay, I'm going to go be short the market, let's say, but if the market rebounds five percent, I will cut my losses and get out of the market. So you've got to say, well, if I'm going to prepare to take a five percent loss, what's the total value? loss that I'm prepared to accept and that, that will then guide as to how much of that, that bear fund you would buy in that situation. So it's like with any investment, you've got to have a, a sort of stop loss risk parameter in mind. You know, don't bet more than what you're prepared to lose essentially in, in that situation. So I hope that sort of clarifies all of that. Yeah, it's been very tempting watching some of these inverse ETFs, but I've at least personally taken the approach that, you know, over the long term, the market grows and, you know, I can't I can't get uh, caught up in the short term opportunity, but it's tough when your portfolio is, you know, tracking the market yeah, down. I mean, you're talking about, I mean, you're talking about market time, you know, like short term market timing kind of calls at the moment. And, you know, if we all had 2020 hindsight and in January we knew that, coronavirus is going to do what it's done, then, you know, buying the bear fund would have been a great opportunity. But again, that's with 2020 hindsight. And the market was down 15% a few weeks ago. And, and, and people were saying then, you know, the worst is over. And, and obviously it wasn't. And the market's gone down to a lot more. So timing is, you know, very, very hard. If you don't feel confident, if you don't have a strong view about it, then, you know, don't do it. And just, uh, you know, um, stay the course, you know, keep with your current investing strategy. You know, don't go out of your I guess the other way, someone like uh, Warren Buffett has said, don't go out of your circle of competence. If you if you invest in companies that you know and understand, and you know they're going to go get... I mean, the other, the other advantage of all this is we know there's a light at the end of the tunnel. If you've invested in individual companies or even in the overall share market, right, through an ETF, you know the top 200 companies in Australia are still going to be around in a few years' time, so it's not going to go to zero. You're going to wear some short-run pain. So that gives you, a, I guess, a... a level of competence, uh, you, you can be very confident that that's going to remain the case. Judging whether the market's declined enough or not enough and when it's going to rebound, if you're not very comfortable with that, then yeah, definitely don't go, go, don't go down that path. Yeah. Now, David, we really appreciate you taking the time and giving us some insight on the coronavirus and its effect on the economy today. We always like to 
close out the interview with a final three questions. So we'll get onto that in a second. I do just have one more question I want to ask you about how you're looking at markets now. So when you when sure. you look at the economy and all the changes and all the impacts that we're seeing now, are there any particular sectors or any particular companies that are really piquing your interest or you're keeping a really close eye on at the moment? Yeah, well, just if you think about the market, and again, we mentioned the bear funds. I mean, I should just, in the interest of balance, we do have geared funds too. So if you have a more positive view on the market, if you think the market is bottom and it's going to rebound, um, you can get, you know, I guess, magnified exposure to the upside of the market as well. And geared funds, incidentally, for, you know, younger investors with a long-term time horizon, uh, it, it can be quite interesting as well because you're getting that, you know, extra exposure to the share market. So I definitely want to point out that you can get geared exposure to the market as well and the way in which those are funded, the, the funding costs, because we do that within the financial markets, we get a you know quite a cheap sort of funding cost, much better than if you were to try to borrow money yourself and, and invest in the share market. So just that as, as an aside. So gear, you know, again, if the mar- again, if the market drops somewhat, we start to see we're getting on top of the coronavirus case. I think the equity market will rebound in a very big way, maybe not get to reclaim the peaks quickly, but it will definitely rebound quite smartly. So the geared fund would be the first port of call in terms of capturing that that rebound. Other things, I think the things that were doing well prior to the crisis will come back and continue to do well because at the end of the day, the world economy will go back to sort of the way it was. And those things that I like are things like the, the, the NASDAQ index, the, our, our NDQ ETF. Again, it gives you exposure to a lot of the, fang, the so-called FANG stocks, the Google, Amazon, and the Facebooks. The Asian equity market I like, we have an Asia technology fund. So, again, it, it basically invests in a lot of Asian technology companies. And they are, you know, in fact, doing holding up pretty well because people are staying at home and, and um, shopping online these days. So it's only going to encourage online sort of activity. Um, so the Asia Fund is another one that I like. And what else? I think the and quality is another one. We have a, a investing in companies with high return on equity. So we have a fund, QLTY, that invests in the top companies around the world that have the best return on earnings, return on equity, as it's called. It's a very strong profitability. Obviously, their profits are going to be heard in the short run. But in the long run, all the evidence suggests those sort of companies do quite well vis-a-vis the broader market. Uh, over time. So there's a few ideas for you, Gear, Asia, uh, NASDAQ, and the quality type, type uh, funds. Just in terms of companies, again, I don't run, uh, not into company specifics, but I mean, obviously the, the companies that have been hurt the hardest here will be the ones that rebound the fastest, as in the, the tourism, you know, the casinos, airlines. These are obviously the companies being hurt very, very hard in, in the short run. And so you would anticipate these, once we get through this crisis, they'll be the ones that can rebound the strongest as well. So, David, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today and share some of your insights. As I mentioned, we always like to finish our interviews with three final questions. So we'll get stuck into them now. The first one is, do you have any must-read books, either investing or otherwise? Yeah, well, let me stick to investing and uh, I look at this three I'd share with you. Firstly, I mean, in terms of broad and thinking about the markets and investment strategies, it's a very straightforward book, a very good book. It's by a fellow called Colin Nicholson. It's called Building Wealth in the Stock Market. I'm sure you can get it through bookstores or online, but that's a very good one I would recommend. Another one in terms of more micro-looking individual companies, you know, one of the best investors over time has been a fellow called Peter Lynch and he has a book called One Up on Wall Street. 
and it goes into some of the processes he used in picking individual companies, small cap stocks in particular, and made him one of the best fund managers in the United States during the 70s and 80s, so one up on Wall Street. And at the risk of you know blowing my own trumpet, I do have a book out myself called The Australian ETF Guide. So if you want to know more about ETFs, you can you can uh, get access to that book. It's on you know the typical websites like um, Amazon and whatnot, either in Kindle or, or um, paperback, and uh, they'll you know deliver it out to you. So there's uh, three books for you. Love it. Three good books. The second question is: What is your go-to source for investing information? Look, go-to source, I mean, you obviously got to keep abreast of the news. So, you know, the finance reviews, obviously, are, you know, I did work at the finance review, but yeah. don't want to show my bias there. But obviously, it's the national financial newspaper. And so anything relevant in terms of financial information, it's a very good, handy source. I mean, there's so much information out there in the world today. It's always good to have you know, one thing, you know, everybody's looking at and it's it concisely, you know, c- captures everything you basically need to know in, in one place, essentially. So that would be my first port of call is to really keep abreast of what's going on in the financial review. And then the last question, if you think back to your early days when you were starting out your career in finance and financial journalism, what advice would you give for your younger self? Look, my advice would be to start early. You know, I probably didn't invest in the share market early enough in my career. And also, you know, invest invest in the way you, you know. So having some individual company stocks uh, can be good, but they can be volatile. And, uh, yeah, and there's a lot of, you know, there's some people closer to companies that know a lot more information about the companies than you, you might know yourself or I, I knew. And so, in, again, the beauty of ETFs now is you can invest in the whole market and just sort of track the whole market or, or have some global macro kind of themes, if you like, US or, or technology or emerging markets. So invest early. You don't necessarily have to, well, definitely have some individual stocks, but just giving you broad exposure to the market using very you know lowish cost passive type index funds such as ETFs makes a lot of sense as well. Just conclude, have stop loss. You know, again, if you're trading, if it's not long-term set and begin investing, if you are trading, always invest with a, with an eye as to at what point is this investment wrong and when do I get out? And then once you know that, decide how much to invest in that idea accordingly so that you're prepared for the loss that you'll take if your investment idea turns out to be wrong. The biggest mistake all investors make is they invest in things without a stop loss and then they basically just watch watch company shares go, you know, potentially all the way to zero before they got out in time. Yeah, I love that. That's some great advice there to close this out. So, David, thank you for taking the time. We really appreciate it. If people want to follow you or your work online, is there a particular place where they can find you? Yes, yes. So Beta Shares, we have a website, as you would expect, that has information about us and all our uh, ETFs. And I put some research on that as well. We have a section called Insights. It's, a, it's basically our blog. So there's some information on ETFs there, but also uh, stuff on the economy that I write. And again, they can come and subscribe. We put out a newsletter once a week as well that gives people information about the economy and also about you know interesting investing ideas using ETFs. So just visit our website if you like, and uh, you'll be able to find out how to um, keep in keep in touch with us. That's great. Well, David, thank you for taking the time. It's fascinating times in the markets at the moment, and uh, we might need to touch base with you again in the future to get your insights as this continues to develop. 
hopefully, hopefully during happier times. I'm sorry I don't have a lot of great news in, in this short run uh, for you, but uh, hopefully next time we meet, we, we may be through the worst of this. 100%. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.